Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 29th of June, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Uh, well, let's get straight on with uh, the NATO's leaders, the NATO leaders meeting, which is taking place in Madrid today. Uh, here we are. NATO is the most successful uh, defence alliance in history, apparently, uh, since 1949. And they're meeting for the Madrid summit this week. Uh, so that's all very exciting. The UK apparently has played a key role in shaping the new NATO strategic concept, which is going to be announced at this summit. Uh, and this highlights the evolving and growing threats the alliance faces and sets out how NATO can meet them and keep their people safe. That's uh, exciting. Uh, so let's just get a, a shot from the from the event. There we go. Uh, there are the two robots. I don't know what how we describe those people. Dangerous, Mike. Dangerous. It's pretty easy to describe them. They're both very dangerous. Well, uh, let's uh, let's have a listen to Jens Soltenberg uh, from this morning at the doorstep briefing because uh, he's talking about how NATO is intending to expand uh, its defences eastwards. Uh, this will be a, a historic and transformative uh, summit for our alliance. Uh, we meet uh, in the midst of uh, the most um, serious security crisis we have faced uh, since the Second World War. Uh, and uh, we see that uh, allies are uh, able to demonstrate unity, that uh, we see an alliance which is uh, uh, responding in a strong and unified way. It will be a transformative summit because we will make historic decisions. Uh, we will uh, agree a new strategic concept for our alliance, which is a blueprint for how to take NATO into the future in a more uh, competitive and dangerous world. Uh, we will agree a fundamental shift to our deterrence and defense with more forward deployed combat form formations with uh, 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 more high readiness forces and also with more pre-positioned equipment. This is the uh, biggest overhaul of our collective defense since the end of the uh, uh, Cold War that will be agreed, uh, agreed at this uh, summit. So the first point there is uh, he was very much suggesting that NATO needs to be uh, uh, unified and united and actually quite a number of people uh, saying the same kind of thing of the participants. So as perhaps hints that there is a bit of disunity within NATO at the minute, uh, but we'll see how that goes. But then obviously uh, moving more and more uh, men and material right up against the Russian border is going to prevent war, apparently. So uh, they're saying that they're going to increase the number of high readiness troops to over 300,000. Uh, they're not going to get too many of them from the UK, it seems. But anyway, look, let's uh, bring Liz Truss on very quickly. It's absolutely imperative that we secure Russia's defeat in Ukraine. And it's imperative for the sake of European security, freedom, and democracy. And it's the only way that we are going to achieve a lasting peace in Europe. Uh, there are some who are saying that there could be some possibility of negotiations now uh, whilst Russia is still in Ukraine. But I think that would bring a false peace and it would lead to further aggression in the future. And we have to learn the lessons of the PASC, the failures of the Minsk Protocol, for example, in being able to secure a lasting peace in the area. So my very strong message is we have to defeat Russia first and negotiate later. And I completely agree with the Australian Prime Minister that we 
need to think very carefully about the messages we're sending to President Xi. We've seen increased collaboration between Russia and China, and we know that China is watching Ukraine closely. They're expanding their military capability, and they're extending their global influence. And one significant thing today is that we will see in the new strategic concept put out by NATO specific reference to China, because it isn't just an issue for the Indo-Pacific region. It's also an issue for Euro-Atlantic security. And I do think that with China extending its influence through economic coercion and building a capable military, there is a real risk that they draw the wrong idea which results in a catastrophic miscalculation, such as invading Taiwan. And that is exactly what we saw in the case of Ukraine, a strategic miscalculation by Putin. So the first thing to notice there, Brian, was that uh, she was having to read off her script as she was giving that. She was looking down at her notes to make sure that she was saying the right things. Uh, but uh, your thoughts on that? Because this whole idea of we must not negotiate until we have defeated Russia, this is insanity. Uh, it, it's utter insanity. And some of it, Mike, is difficult to respond to immediately because you're just thinking the woman's mad. But we, we are going to defeat Russia before we do it. We can't stop the war now because we'd have peace, but that's not the peace we want. We're going to defeat Russia. Well, what did Lavrov say? If you want to do it, get on and do it. Yeah. And what's coming is, is going to be way beyond what that lady is able to consider. So just warmongering, dangerous, dangerous talk. Um, Alex, uh, uh, very keen to, to hear what you thought of uh, Jens Stoltenberg and uh, Liz Truss there. Stoltenberg there is announcing the end of NATO's 1949 to 2022 basis of policymaking, which is consensus among the international organizations in which the various Western countries play a part. NATO is famed for being a consensus led body that's uh, unlike the EU, for example, doesn't often take one member state, one vote decisions. It looks around the table till everyone is on the same page. Stoltenberg is suggesting the NATO equivalent of qualified majority voting or simple majority voting uh, and forcing unanimity uh, or uh, forcing that through as if it's unanimous. Uh, Truss's remarks are equally startling, of course, because she is talking about the failure of the Minsk Accords of 2014 and 2015, uh, also known as the Minsk Agreements. There were two or three instruments. You can read about them in Ian Davis's recent long read on whether Ukraine needs denazification. Um, the reason why these accords failed, she's either suggesting it's because Britain wasn't involved and left it to the continentals to talk to the, 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 to the Ukrainians and Russians, or she is glossing over that Ukraine, just like Georgia and Moldova in its way, pro-Western former Soviet states, uh, said an absolute no to any kind of autonomy uh, for pro-Russian or Russian sympathetic areas within their own uh, territory. Uh, that's why the agreements failed. And of course, Ukraine takes this a step further because the neo-Nazis in Ukraine told Zelensky when he was elected in 2019 that he would be hung from a tree if he implemented a, a one jot or tittle of the Minsk agreements. Yes. OK, well, uh, let's then turn to the Brucey Conference. This is the Royal United Services Institute, which is taking place yesterday and today. Uh, this is the Rusi Land Warfare Conference 2022. Uh, the Rusi Land Warfare Conference is the UK's preeminent gathering of the international land forces community, hosted annually on behalf of the UK's Chief of the General Staff. Um, well, we'll come on to the Chief of the General Staff in one second, but uh, 
Uh, first of all, we've got uh, Ben Wallace. Now, he was uh, uh, reported in the press as having uh, written, this has been denied by Ben Wallace, but he's been reported in the press as having written to uh, Boris Johnson demanding that the uh, defence budget is lifted from 2% to 2.5% of GDP. Uh, but just have a listen to what uh, he said, or some short comments from uh, the Rusi conference yesterday. For too long, defence has lived on a diet of smoke and mirrors, hollowed out formations and fancy efficiency savings. While in the last few years, the threat from states has started to increase. And right now, Russia is the most direct and pressing threat to Europe, to our allies and to these shores. I'm serious when I say there is a very real danger that Russia will lash out against wider Europe. And that in these days of long range missiles and stealth, distance is no protection. As the Chief of the General Staff so correctly pointed out this morning, the threat has changed. And as the Prime Minister and his fellow leaders are addressing Madrid today, so must our response. Russia is not our only problem. An assertive China ready to China's rules-based system and democracy, terrorism on the march right across Africa, and Iranian nuclear ambitions to date still unresolved. The threat is growing and is global and is multi-domain. And it is now time to signal that peace dividend is over and investment needs to continue to grow. Before it becomes too late to address the resurgent threat and the lessons learned in Ukraine, it is time to mobilize, to be ready and to be relevant. So Alex, again, uh, the, the enemy is Russia and China, but actually we're adding uh, Iran to that. Yes, I wonder why both Truss and Wallace uh, bring in these other Eurasian adversaries. Russia is awful and China, says Truss. Uh, Russia is awful and so is Iran, says Wallace. Uh, is it that we're going to get a two for one or a, a buy one, get two free war? Uh, otherwise, why do you, you know, lock horns with, with other powers when you're barely able or completely unable, it seems, to deal with Russia? And my, my comment is this is the same man, Ben Wallace, who, who a month or so ago was talking about more cuts to the size of the British army. Uh, now, all of a sudden, he swings around and he's talking about mobilisation. But of course, we suspect he's not talking about mobilisation of British troops. We'll see. Well, we'll see. Uh, so let's come to Patrick Sanders, the new chief of the general staff. Uh, and of course, he was saying we need to defeat Russia on the battlefield. Uh, within a few days of him taking up his post a couple of weeks ago. Well, he took up his post a couple of weeks ago and then he made that comment about a week later. Uh, let's see what he had to say yesterday morning. In all my years in uniform, I haven't known such a clear threat to the principles of sovereignty and democracy and the freedom to live without fear of violence as the brutal aggression of President Putin and his expansionist ambitions. I believe we're living through a history, a period of history as profound as the one our forebears did 80 years ago. And now, as then, our choices will have a disproportionate effect on the future. This is our 1937 moment. We're not at war, but we must act rapidly so that we aren't drawn into one through a failure to contain territorial expansion. So surely it's beholden on each of us to ensure that we never find ourselves asking that futile question, should we have done more to prevent war? Now, we're already a busy army, but today's about mobilization, and to mobilize effectively, we will need to suppress our additive culture and to guard against the tyranny of and. We can't do everything well, and some things are gonna to have to stop. 
it will mean ruthless prioritization. So from now, the army will have a singular focus to mobilize, to meet today's threat, and thereby prevent war in Europe. So we're going to prevent war by creating a war. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. But Mike, I've listened to this man quite a lot over the uh, last few days, and he's brilliant at word soup. So you try and pin down what he's actually talking about, what he's planning to do. It's very difficult to get anything that's got any substance out of it. That's, that's which, my, is why, which is why it's even more dangerous because he's busy yeah. pushing for war while he's with nothing. It's he's, he's well, we, we're going to show what's he going to do? Fling blancmange at Putin here? We're going to show the state of his army in a minute. Yes. So he, he went on. Let's listen to the second part of this. So what does this mean for the army? Well, my predecessor and my friend, General Sir Mark Carlton Smith, laid the foundations for the most ambitious transformation of the British Army in a generation future soldier. We, I, owe him a great debt. The government has also generously committed 41 billion to army equipment over the next decade. But as we face a new reality, a race to mobilize, we must be honest with ourselves about future soldiers' timelines, capability gaps, and risks. And now, our own diminished stockpiles as a result of gifting in kind to the brave soldiers of the armed forces of Ukraine. So we shouldn't be afraid of necessary heresies. Defense is only as strong as its weakest domain, and technology doesn't eliminate the relevance of combat mass. So to mobilize the army, I'm going to drive activity across four focused lines of effort. First, and most importantly, boosting readiness. NATO needs high readiness forces that can deploy at short notice for the collective defense of alliance members. Deterring Russia, means more of the army ready, more of the time, and ready for high-intensity war in Europe. So we'll pick up the pace of combined arms training and major on urban combat. We'll rebuild our stockpiles and review the deployability of our vehicle fleets. The time has come to be frank about our ability to fight if called upon. So first of all, Brian, he's absolutely uh, acknowledging there that they have hemorrhaged uh, their stockpiles for Ukraine. They've got nothing left, so they've got to rebuild. But isn't it amazing that uh, just by coincidence, on the day that uh, the day before Jan Stoltenberg is talking about uh, increasing uh, high readiness forces to three hundred thousand, and he's talking about increasing high readiness forces. So so clearly, uh, the rhetoric is coming from uh, the UK in, in some areas, and. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and and you know this this whole idea of this of this new uh, uh, strategic concept, um, the UK government is claiming to have absolutely helped design that, feed, fed in from the integrated operating concept uh, to to that new strategic concept. So we'll see what that turns out to be in a second. But look, let's have just a very quick look at the future soldier guide because this is what he's talking about. Uh, this is uh, the. Uh, future soldier uh, diagram, this nice diagram that they've created to show the structure of the uh, British Army uh, in the not too distant future. Uh, uh, or at least he's not so sure about the timelines, but uh, it's all going to be integrated because civilians are very much part and parcel of this. So we've got civil service included in the army, the whole force integrated by design. Look how many, many men, 73,000. This is not an army. This is just a defense force that uh, the army's been re reduced to now. So this is the uh, 
there's no words to describe how de deceitful this policy is because there isn't a British army at the moment. No, that's right. But, but that's because we're relying on other people to do our dying for us. Indeed, so so yeah. anyway, let's uh, keep going. This is going to be the structure, army headquarters, allied rapid reaction forces, field army and so on. Uh, 77th Brigade is uh, chosen as one of the uh, one of the areas here, uh, of course, uh, because the information war is so important. Uh, also, cyber and electromagnetic activities effects group, which includes 13 signals regiment regiment, which is absolutely part of the whole information war structure. But very quickly, then you get onto the sort of more common purpose type uh, language and uh, and information. So they're going to produce a, the, there is an integrated workforce plan. There's a management managing ta talent plan. There's a developing talent plan. There's a teamwork plan. There's an army living plan, uh, and there's a health performance and well-being plan and this includes mental health and I believe Brian the military has a mental health problem at the moment. They have a huge mental health problem and we'll move straight into that just to get the emphasis here when we're talking about what's going on uh, with uh, forces in UK. So this is the summary published 23rd of June 2022. This bulletin provides statistical information on mental health in the UK armed forces uh, the first section of the bulletin is an overall summary and the second section is a detailed summary. Well, we've just taken some snapshots. I think our viewers and listeners are going to be utterly stunned. Here we go. One in eight uh, members of the armed forces have been seen in military health care for a mental health related reason. One in eight members of our yeah. services have had a mental health problem. Uh, and that's I'll, just in 2021, 2022. Absolutely. So just uh, we've got a graph showing some of the background. But Alex, I, I looked at your face as, as I gave that figure. This is astonishing. This is an utter disgrace apart from anything else. But this is breakdown of the UK's armed forces. And we have these senior officers talking about plans to go to war with Russia. It seems to me maybe some of the senior officers should be seeking a little bit of help. Well, yes, of course, Brian, I don't want to break the flow of your segment too much. But yes, uh, that's going to be in the region of 10,000 of the So, If we just restrict ourselves to the regular full time servicemen or service people, as we're supposed to say now, 73,000, that's around 10,000 have gone to see a shrink. And uh, you have had intelligence a couple of years ago from, I think, specifically the Royal Marines that when they had ongoing mental health problems after deployment, uh, they were told by some fairly official MOD-sponsored mental health people that one way out was suicide. So, you know, we'd be getting pretty near the bones here. And I must also uh, pick up on what you said about the defence force, uh, the army becoming a defence force, because that, of course, is the term we gave Germany, Japan and Italy after the war. That's what conquered nations get. The phrase defence force unwittingly tripped off the lips of Sajid Javid, late of Deutsche Bank, when he was talking to uh, army people, rather giving away too much. And yet at the same time, the G7, which is another one of these organizations threatening Russia. The G7, uh, were there, well, Olaf Scholz was asked, the German chancellor, by the Polish-German journalist, Rosalia Romanes, at the, the G7 summit that's just finished, what security guarantees are you as the G7 giving Ukraine? Scholz said, of course I can answer that. He paused for five seconds, then spread his palms out and said, that's it. Yeah. Well, here's some of the uh, back data. People can freeze the screens and check it for themselves or go to the source document. But uh, we see the line on the left of your screen going back to 
uh, 2012-13 showing about 8% and then we've seen a, a climb since then. So it's not as if this problem has been unknown. Uh, it's been building steadily. Uh, we've got this sort of information, all mental health in the UK armed forces by demographics, a higher proportion of personnel seen in military health care for mental health reasons, RAF and Royal Navy, females and other ranks, lower proportion, Royal Marines and ethnic minorities. And this one gives some real meat on it because it's given percentages for each of the services. There for, there for the army, uh, uh, top of the centre column, you can see 11.9%. Uh, but this is the one that should catch your eye. Female, 24.2% of females in the military having recorded a mental health problem. This is breakdown, in my opinion. People can challenge me if they like. This is breakdown of the armed forces. And uh, here we have some little uh, diagrams showing the types of problems people have come with, neurotic disorders, adjustment disorders, depressive episodes, mood disorders. These are very dangerous conditions, in my opinion, for people who are going to be handling weapons and put in a combat situation. And is that not how uh, atrocities happen in combat situations? Uh, could be, Mike, particularly when they're mixed with drugs. So uh, let's add a little bit more. This is part of the summary that this document gives us. So here we are, one in seven Royal Navy personnel, the senior military health care for a mental health related reason. Uh, Royal Marines, one in 14. Um, Army personnel, one in eight and RAF person, personnel one in seven. So I'm almost, I was almost speechless, to be honest, when I saw this, uh, because this, on top of the discipline problems that we've seen recently, orgies in the parachute regiments, this is breakdown of the military structure. And we have a senior officer pretending he's still got a, a viable force to defend the UK. But of course, the other subject that the Ministry of Defence is in love with at the moment is all matters to do with LGBT. Um, so I've taken this report from Out News, but it's all over the military reporting structure. Lord Etherton to head review of the impact of ban on LGBT military personnel. Uh, there's a lot of tweets going around the military networks. I've chosen the LGBT network. And to put this in context, we're just going to ask one question. Is the UK military obsessed with gay rights above fighting efficiency? So it's not per se the gay uh, uh, subject itself. It's where you put this in relation to fighting efficiency and with the other subjects we're witnessing breakdown. Now, let's turn... Alex. Just... In 10, in 10 seconds, uh, the US is ahead of us on this curve from its, from its military reporting. They find the same, that the Navy and the Air Force have a lot more suicides because a lot more of their personnel are stationed managing rust buckets uh, while they're trying to cannibalize them and keep them going and pretend to the public they're still in tip-top shape. The Army in the US does have the same uh, disproportionate mental suffering of women. And it seems tied in with what you just said there, Brian, because of course the LGBTQPIA agenda is being pushed there too. And women are doubly uh, the, the focus of it because they're finding sexual advances from both men and homosexual women now, and there's nowhere for them to run. Uh, that, that, is, that's, that is correct because uh, we get information along those lines. Uh, let's come to the subject of Ukraine and can we trust reporting on Ukraine? 
and uh, Mike, you picked up on this well, I particular image. Well, I just wanted image. to kick this off with uh, with Liz Truss's uh, tweet uh, with respect to the the shopping mall that was allegedly hit by uh, Russia's uh, Russian missile. Uh, this is shocking and barbaric attack on innocent civilians, and my thoughts are with all those affected. Is that what it was? Well, we've been looking at a number of sources to get reports on what's actually happening. And uh, one of the ones I, sources I'd like to come back to is Moon of Alabama. And I'm going to really stress, we're just giving a little snapshot of the report. We think it's very good. We're encouraging people to go and read it themselves. So the, the, the website I'll give you details of in a moment. Uh, but this is the article uh, where initially uh, there was a report on the fact that uh, the shopping mall had been, uh, been hit. Uh, but then the uh, report started to introduce some, some diagrams and maps to help people understand uh, what had really gone on. So if we zoom in from Moon of Alabama into the area of interest, uh, top uh, right of your screen, you've got a park and lake. Centre, you've got a big machine part, plant, which is the Credmash machine plant. And then we've got the shopping mall down at the bottom of the screen. Now, I've just got a little bit of video clip, which I'm going to play and talk to you at the same time, because this is in the park as the missiles hit. Uh, you can see the immense shock and the debris that's then sprayed over that area. Um, there were a number of camera shots. Some of the people here clearly very lucky not to be hit or hurt by shrapnel as these weapons come in. But we're going to have a look at where the weapons were hitting in, in just a moment. Uh, but this is, um, of course, this is uh, camera footage from Ukraine, Mike. So there's no messing around at what we're seeing here or uh, what's actually happening. Look at the top of your screen because you'll actually see clearer where the strike occurs. I think there's an explosion happens there we are just behind the tree um, so this is uh, a blast coming in from an attack which is a little distance away but obviously by the amount of shrapnel coming down on this area it's a vast explosion and if we go to this one this is a little video clip of what the real target was which was that uh, factory itself and uh, the shopping mall was effectively caught in part of the blast, probably hit by some of the falling uh, debris that was still alight. Um, but uh, Ukrainian footage itself showing that the real target was not the shopping mall, mm. it was actually a factory. Now, people can say, well, of course, um, civilians were put at risk. But the problem for the Russians is that the Ukrainians consistently bury their military capability, troops and artillery amongst uh, civilian areas in order to try and protect it. So if you want to go and see this analysis yourself, uh, here's the address, www.moonofalabama.org. And uh, there's many li links through uh, to Twitter pages with very good information and video clips. So you'll need to spend some time. And I'm just going to add that as the war goes on, the Western propaganda reaches the gutter. Uh, the mirror wins the prize with this article, I think. And here we are. Vladimir Putin could be assassinated with a hammer to the head, says former CIA chief. Uh, this is the gentleman, Daniel Hoffman. The people most likely to enact any such plot will be part of the Russian president's inner circle and motivated by his bungle invasion of Ukraine. This is all supposition. There's no evidence or fact to it. 
the, uh, these guys that are going to do it are going to be so secret about it so that Putin doesn't find them and kill them first. It'll happen all of a sudden and he'll be dead. Nobody's going to ask, hey, Vladimir, would you like to leave? No, it's an effing hammer to the head and he's dead. This is appalling stuff, uh, Mike, utterly, utterly appalling. Mr. Hoffman singled out three individuals he thinks are most likely to orchestrate Putin's ultimate demise. Defence Minister Sergei Shurgo, head of the Security Council Nikolai Patrushev, and the director of the FSB, Alexander Bortnikov. Uh, apologies for the extra H there. I'm just going to say this is some of the most appalling stuff I've seen. Alex, not a shred of evidence. This is simply a propaganda piece to try and cause trouble inside the Russian governmental structure. Because those three men are known to be Putin loyalists. So the only thing, the only benefit of, of naming these men as would-be assassins, of course, is to cause consternation and doubt among their colleagues about their loyalty. Yes. That's, yeah, that's it. That's exactly what so, that's <laughs> pathetic. Anyway, uh, okay. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there. You'd be very welcome as a community member, uh, and that would be much appreciated. Uh, or you could pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, and uh, but in any case, do share material on the various platforms. Um, Alex, uh, a couple of new items on the UK column website. The tempo is picking up nicely, Mike, a couple of months into my job as UK Columns Commissioning Editor. Um, Ian Davis has come up with another excellent uh, piece for us. This one is in the comment section and is entitled The UK's New Bill of new of No Rights, uh, which continues, uh, I think, the scepticism that all of us at UK Column have on the concept of human rights. There is uh, also one in by the former British Army and latterly Detective Constable of Gloucestershire Police, Charles Mallet. Uh, who, as we covered recently, resigned from Gloucestershire Police when he found that no senior officer would take his co concerns seriously about COVID-induced uh, apartheid policing. Um, in a previous existence, Charles Mallet taught English in Kiev, and from that, he has found that the Kiev School of Economics, which we'll be mentioning later in the news, uh, is launching via its charitable arm a so-called humanitarian appeal, which turns out to be for the raising of money for rockets and drones. So uh, Charles Mallet took this to the International Committee of the Red Cross as it fl flagrantly flouts all their seven core values, as you can read in the article, and they didn't deign to respond to him. Um, there is also now a full transcript of UK Column's first interview with a sitting member of Parliament. This is the video that most of you will have seen, Sir Christopher Chope uh, talking about uh, vaccine adverse reactions, the member for Christchurch in Sussex. And we now have a full hyperlinked transcript, which will be of interest to those who wish to use the material to alert their own members of Parliament. OK, and uh, where does that take us, Brian? Well, oh, this is this, me again. Uh, Alex. To Alex, yeah. Yes, this wasn't ideally placed in the news by me, but it is a mention, uh, I think, that's important. Uh, Rodney Atkinson, who is actually the brother of the well-known actor Rowan Atkinson, is one of the longest uh, campaigners for the preservation of the British Constitution that there is. He's decided on his website, freenations.net, to publish the uh, 2001 letter which was sent to conservative parliamentary candidates uh, during the opposition period because the, the blair government of labor was in power at the time and so it's a faded fact from 20 years ago but here maud is telling sitting and would-be conservative members of parliament that if they are 
asked to sign, I'm sorry, it's a bit blurred, it's 20 years old, but uh, if they are asked to endorse a so-called South Molten Declaration committing Britain to sovereignty, they must say no, because this would appear to indicate that you couldn't be in the EU, which of course we were at the time, and be a sovereign nation. Uh, the, the declaration which the uh, candidates were being told they must on no account sign is the one that's on screen at the moment, and you can freeze it if you want to read it. This comes from Rodney Atkinson's account. So uh, the idea of Britain controlling its own borders, its own money, and its own laws was an absolute no-no in a secret communique which uh, Atkinson has now revealed. And you can find details of that uh, in the rubric Stories We Are Watching, which we are reviving. Uh, all of us are going to be putting more stories again in that area. Uh, you can see it's listed there and next to it a very useful uh, talk on uh, what happens to university level education, which David Scott spotted. We will be talking about education later. Uh, there is also now uh, an edit a revived editor's choice section on the website. Uh, so go and see uh, some of the pieces there. The two by David Scott, The Battles of Mians Academy and Curiouser and Curiouser are about uh, sexual indoctrination and grooming going on in our schools, uh, on which David Scott has some very intelligent commentary from the past, which we're reviving for people as it's so topical now. Um, OK, let's uh, let's move on then. And uh, well, good news, everybody, uh, because uh, here's Sajid Javid tweeting this out. Our new digital health and social care plan will modernize the NHS for patients and help bust the COVID backlogs. Uh, we are adding a huge number of new features to the NHS app. Please join the 28 million who've downloaded it if you haven't already. Uh, so what are they talking about? Well, they're saying that people across the country will benefit from faster, more personalized health care. Uh, uh, following a digital revolution to make the health and social care system fit for the 21st century. That's exciting. Uh, people across the country will benefit from that. Uh, and uh, the plan for digital health and social care, which has been published today, sets out the government's ambitious vision for transforming health and care with digital technology, which will give patients access to quicker and more effective care at their fingertips and will save the health and care system time and money. So uh, what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about exactly what Debbie has been mentioning over the last couple of months. Uh, more uh, care at home, in inverted commas, with various uh, sensors going home with you to make sure that uh, you can be uh, tracked at home. Um, and of course, you will be able to join your uh, new GP uh, via the NHS app uh, and a whole host of other things that you'll be able to do through the NHS app. But what is the key point here, Debbie, uh, that... Uh, it is the NHS app, which will be your uh, frontline connection to the NHS from now on. Uh, forget about making even phone calls to your GP, uh, because without the app, you won't get access, it seems. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, my I can feel my blood pressure rising now, and, and you're right, biosensors. But, you know, they say this is the way to get a face-to-face -face appointment with your GP. So no longer do you have human contact where you are physically in front of someone. This is the new face-to-face -face, um, appointment service. And, you know, I've spoken to so many people and including someone very senior in the NHS who's telling me these virtual wards and hospital at home, which you've spoken about, Mike, before, it's not going to work. Number one, it's too expensive. Number two, you're going to need to have um, expert oversee on it. And, and those people are called district nurses. And district nurses are the most, I, mean, I have huge admiration. I wish I'd done my district nurse training. They're hugely experienced. We don't have enough of them to be able to supervise. The people that they want to remotely monitor at home probably haven't got the equipment or are able to access it. 
So it's a complete and utter nightmare. And as Sajid Javid says, and we've been saying on UK Column, this is a radical overhaul. I mean, the NHS has changed beyond recognition. This is just the start. When he says radical, he means radical. Yes, and it's not going to be cheap yes, either because uh, it's going to be two billion pounds uh, earmarked for this digital uh, transformation that's going on. But the question then is, uh, what? Uh, how are people that are being given hospital care or any kind of care at home, how are they doing at the moment? Well, let's just bring the latest uh, all-cause mortality statistics from the ONS uh, on screen. And well, not very well, because if we, uh, if we just uh, remind ourselves, this is where we are at the moment on the right-hand side of this graph. And the, the black dotted line there is the five-year average in terms of deaths. Uh, well, another week has gone past and another week with excess mortality over the five-year average. And remember, this is already an inflated five-year average because now they're counting, uh, they're, they're counting the five-year av average on the basis of the extra deaths uh, that took place over the last two years. Uh, so the number of deaths was above the five-year average in private homes. Uh, so that would be 29.4% uh, of, uh, of private homes, 15.9% uh, above for care homes, uh, and uh, just above the five-year average in other settings. Uh, and uh, we're, let's see, so, uh, and the same for hospitals. So uh, excess mortality taking place everywhere. So, but private homes being the place where you're most likely to die. So that's clearly why they want more people uh, being treated at home rather than hospitals. It's an incredible situation, Mike. We, we're gonna have to spend more time to pull some of this policy apart and what's, what's in the head of these people that are, are doing this. But I don't get the feeling anything is to uh, make us healthier. I think it's uh, to cause more problem. We know that there's been trouble with vaccinations and there's been many, many vaccine adverse reactions. At the moment, the MHRA refuses to acknowledge that. But back in April 2021, we did an interview with a lady, Nicola, who told the tragic story of her husband receiving a vaccination and then being paralysed. Um, ultimately, he was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And uh, Debbie, you were... Um, bringing us really up to speed with what that uh, that particular problem brought with it. Uh, I, I'll get you to just comment on that, and then I'll bring up the fact that this gentleman has now received a vaccine adverse reaction, vaccine damage payment. Uh, this seems to be a turnaround for the government. Yes, doesn't it? Um, I'm looking at it. Um, I mean, I'm obviously very pleased that people are receiving um, a payment. But um, when we look at the bigger picture, we have to wonder how many people are going to receive a payment and are the government going to keep all of this under wraps because they don't want to know that anybody's receiving a payment. And, and what about people that have had vaccine adverse effects and hasn't got it on their diagnosis and then have to prove 60% disability? And it's, again, this is a huge, another huge area we need to look at more. OK, uh, well, here's the headline from Stoke-on-Trent Live. Dad, uh, paralysed by COVID vaccine, leaves hospital after 420 days. Security worker Anthony Shingler's life has completely changed following his first dose of AstraZeneca vaccine last year. And uh, there's another one here. Fit and healthy dad, paralysed by COVID jab. Uh, wins 120,000 payout in UK first. Now we know that this gentleman is is one of many, 
Um, do you think £120,000 is going to do the job, Mike, for the suffering that this man has endured and what he still faces? Uh, not even close. No, I think that's true. So what's, what is so important about this is now we have evidence coming to the table, irrefutable evidence that the vaccine is, uh, is been, has been damaging people. And of course, we have seen the evidence from MHRA's own statistics of vaccine deaths. But uh, they want to carry on uh, jabbing, Debbie. Um, you've, you've got a lot uh, here which uh, we'd like to bring up on screen. We're going to do our best, but uh, we might keep a little bit of it for tomorrow's news. But here's, uh, this is from Conservative Woman. Stop jabbing now, my latest plea to Dame June Rain. And uh, what, what have we got here? A paramount importance was the fact that with the advent of COVID-19, the MHRA rose to the occasion and tore up the rule book, thereby ensuring that the new medication uh, was rolled out in time to save millions of lives. Uh, they're absolutely on the button with that one, Debbie. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a great article um, and Gillian Diamond has been following this for about seven months now. And um, she, she's questioning all that we're questioning. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if she's watching UK Column because she actually mentions uh, one of the videos that we we showed last week. And quite rightly, um, she writes about the, the safety aspect of the MHRA in that it's non-existent. So conservative women have been really great and doing a lot of work as are many people now so the mhra are being looked at by many many people and of course this is exactly what we need and i'm going to say and it's been your good research debbie that's led to many of these reports that other people are now picking up on uh, this was just a little bit more of the um, conservative woman article um, one of the boxes here, what about safety surveillance? Well, Dame June glossing over the fact that it previously been customary to test new medicines for years rather than months before pronouncing them safe. She said, We're only really, we only really learn about benefit risk in clinical use. Fortunately, in the case of COVID, the terrorised public were only too eager to act as guinea pigs and rush to put the novel treatments to the test. This is the reality, uh, Debbie, isn't it? That as they have cut back on the safety requirements, the public just become the guinea pigs themselves and they suffer accordingly as uh, the gentleman we've just shown evidences. They haven't cut back on safety. They've just removed it, it would seem. Yeah, indeed. Well, age of autism is another one that you've picked up on here. And uh, this is getting into new products uh, coming. Um, strangely, we've got a UK column news there, and this is because they picked up on comment in one of our newses. So the subject isn't to do with the uh, military, it's to do with uh, what you've been talking about. But uh, if I bring in this section here, tell us about uh, uh, the significance of this NIBSC. And I'll just highlight here, there's the reference to the UK column report down the bottom. So what is this, well, this organisation is a, doing? This is, a great article. this is a great article. And thank you so much to John for what he did was he was transcribing what we showed last week when the MHRA on their board meeting, um, coincidentally, the day before the national incident on polio was declared, they were talking about the polio vaccine via NIBS. And John has picked this up and said, you know, 
since when have the MHRA and NIBS been manufacturing biological agents and testing them and regulating them and pretty much controlling the whole agenda? So thank you so much to John for, for transcribing these words of Mark Bailey. And of course, this is, was exclusive footage that we showed last week at the MHRA board meeting that isn't yet up online um, on their YouTube channel. So thank you so much for doing that. And that just follows in nicely to NIBS, the um, National Institute of uh, Biological Standards, which we'll, talk to, we'll, which we'll talk about in a minute. Right, okay. Now, there's a slight change of subject, but there isn't, because of course, if we bring this headline from the Evening Standard on the screen, we're talking about getting children vaccinated, but all of a sudden now we've moved over to polio. And if I just bring a few more images up, uh, we can show how suddenly the public in UK is being hit by this idea that we've got to be very careful because there's a polio outbreak and uh, a jolt is needed to tackle falling child vaccine uptake before it's too late. So this is all fear factor. Um, but then we've got the problem that UK was polio free. Uh, and now we've had a national incident. And the image on the right is from the uh, Guardian. We can see it here uh, where we've got uh, so-called expert Devi Sridhar saying, should we be worried that polio has been detected in the UK? Uh, and this is the uh, meat of it. So what's going on, Debbie? Why the sudden interest in polio? And why does it appear that there's so many of these articles attempting to put us back into a state of fear? Well, Debbie Shridhar, bless her. She does like to blow things up, doesn't she? Um, okay, so polio, it appears to me, we've talked before about the germ team, and the WHO and the, the fact that they're going to go and hunt the things. And this is what we seem to be doing in the UK. We're hunting for things. You know, Thames Water are going to be looking down like every single person's individual personal sewage pipe to detect, see where this polio came from. We're looking for stuff, anything, literally anything. And we'll come on as again in a bit to mention more of the things that they're going to look for. So the next thing is, is polio. So what are you going to do? The last two years have been locked down. So child immunizations have fallen because people haven't been able to get to the doctor, etc. So now they're going to fear you into getting your kids jabbed for something else. Right, Debbie. And here's more of it. This is ITV. If we pop this one on screen, polio discovered in the UK. Uh, what is it? And is there a risk to the public? And then you've picked up on the um, UK HSA. Uh, working with the MHRA, um, these two organisations going in together. What's special about this arrangement? Wow, <laughs> what isn't special? Why would you want the MHRA working with the UK HSA? And and there's other people on, uh, with, with regards to linkages of the MHRA and UK HSA. So we're seeing an awful lot of security coming in. And again, at the MHRA board meeting, Last week, we were talking about criminal enforcement for about 20 minutes. So, you know, where where is this actually going? We have to ask ourselves. Uh, well, <laughs> the clear thing we can see is it's going into a network. So if we have a look at this one, you've picked up from the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. Um, we, we can see some of the other organisations, CPRD, NIBSC, MHRA is in there as well, but also British 
pharmacopoeia, if I pronounce that correctly. Now, that latter one you said has popped up all of a sudden. You hadn't seen it, and now that terminology, that name, appears to be um, appearing everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I've had more MHRA letter headings than I care to remember in the last two years. And CPRD, of course, is the GP data database that the MHRA use. NIBSC is the National Institute of Biological Standards and Control, um, which is the MHRA's lab and biological arm. And then we've got British Pharmacopeia, which is this huge, great, big manual full of every single drug known to mankind, or at least ones that are, 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 are used within this country, and all the side effects. So we've got four organisations working within the MHRA. So we need to be looking at all of them. Okay, and then we've talked about this organisation before, but NIBSC, we're going into the labs that are playing around with all this stuff, and they simply appear to get more and more powerful. So they're playing a key role in manufacture of biological medicines, national regulatory authorities. The, uh, they're working with the UK government, European bodies. They're working with the World Health Organisation and the UN. This really, it seems to me, Debbie, is the back door by which WHO policy um, can be enacted through an, a nation's own facilities. Or I could say... They're, it, they're all one. They're all one. Yes. OK. Yeah. One health. One, <laughs> one, yeah. one, one world. <laughs> Sorry, one world health. And uh, again, I'll give you a bit more information on screen here. People can freeze this, but it's showing the whole range of um, medical conditions that they're looking at, diphtheria, whooping cough, meningitis, polio, mumps, rubella, etc. And then when we get into the uh, management, I think this is one of your key points. There's this, I call it a snake's wedding. There's a network of people who you have no idea who their interests are. You can freeze this, have a look at the small print. But we have uh, people who are one minute part of the regulators and the next minute they're working with big private companies. Um, it's impossible to keep track of the interests here, Debbie. Oh, I mean, conflicts of interest. We've always said this is the big thing with the MHRA. And I mean, just very, very briefly, I mean, you know, please freeze the screens, everybody. But we've got Paul Boyer, who was uh, Imperial, Zeneca, Pfizer <laughs> on the board. We've got Chris Burns, WHO. We've got a lady called Maria Donatononio, who's Control Records Office. We've got Alison James, MHRA, FDA, linkage there. And we've got Nicola Rose, Cambridge, who's also working in direct contact with China. So, you know, who's running these, these, these um, arms of the MHRA? Uh, because they all are seen to be pharmaceuticals, the WHO, which of course links into the United Nations. Um, that's absolutely right. Now, uh, just to end this segment, uh, Debbie, we've got um, another fear factor, it seems to be emerging, and that's disease X. Now, I chose this uh, headline from The Sun. Next COVID, new disease X could arrive in Britain any day as experts warns of signs of a major outbreak. So that was from the 26th of June. Um, but here we are more uh, images may be frightening to some people. And then we've got much activity um, from the manufacturing world because they're going to produce a response to disease X. 
Museum of London is, is uh, running stuff about disease X and how to fight London's next epidemic. Uh, people can freeze this. Here's the World Health Organization. The Daily Mail is onto it. What, what is this? What are they trying to do to people? Is there a disease X or is this simply a scaring tactic? Well, in my opinion, and very briefly, because I know that we're short of time, but from what I can see, we're going to get a resurgence of Victorian diseases. We're going to get all the old things that you thought have gone, scarlet fever, whooping cough, uh, TB, rickets. We're already seeing rickets. Um, you're going to get all of these different diseases coming back for one reason or another. They're going to throw everything at it. And all of these diseases are going to kind of merge into like a thanks to Dr. Harry, because he describes it as a swarm. We're going to get a swarm of different things, which in the end, nobody's going to know what it is, what it's called. And bingo, they're going to call it disease X. And for disease X, we're going to find out probably we don't have any antibiotics. And oh, dear, what are we going to do? Oh, the 100 day mission. Don't panic. Something will come down the line within 100 days. So you can see the way that this is going to roll out, muddy the water, throw the kitchen sink at everybody implies to me that maybe people are panicking a little bit. OK, Debbie, thank you for that. We will do a little bit more on that subject on UK Column News tomorrow. So uh, don't worry if, if there's a lot of information there. We'll we'll uh, analyse it a little bit more in the news tomorrow. Um, so let's uh, move back to Alex then and uh, over to uh, the continent. And the Dutch farmers have been protesting, Alex. They have. Before we put that on screen, I'll just say that Debbie's opinion piece, uh, pulling together all that she's just said, should be up very shortly on ukcolumn.org as well. So look out for it. Now, in the Netherlands, DutchNews.nl, which reports in English for expatriates and uh, others were interested from abroad, was reporting already on the 22nd of June that a huge number of farmers, up to 40,000, came to a field in the eastern Dutch village of Stroe, S-T-R-O-E, Saturday before last, uh, in order to demonstrate against the Dutch government's policy, uh, which has much to do with an executive agency. Um, which uh, is called the RIVM, um, uh, a policy of reducing by half the nitrous oxide emissions, which is being blamed largely on farms and to a lesser extent on vehicle exhaust fumes. This is being bastardised in public discourse to we must cut nitrogen. We must stop using less nitrogen, which, of course, is nearly three quarters of the uh, planetary and uh, atmosphere. But what's meant is the NOx, the nitrogen. This has been going on for a couple of years, but Dutch farmers have had enough now. They came out because it's midsummer to demonstrate in the field, as you can see. We'll put that back on screen now. Um, they uh, have got really had enough of it. Um, Carolina van der Plas is a member of the Dutch House of Representatives, the lower chamber of the Dutch legislature, who has left the Christian Democrats, one of the mainline right of centre parties, in order to form her own BBB party to stand up for farmers. She was tweeting that there were tens of thousands of people here attending the biggest farmers protest in Dutch history and thousands more were still on the way. DutchNews.nl editorialises or summarises quite well here. They quote the leader of one of the farmers groups, there's quite a few of them called Agraxi or Agrarian Action, Mr Bart Kemp, who said that the state of the Netherlands is at war with what he calls the farmers republic, in other words the concern of all farmers or the, uh, the way of life of farming. Uh, because of course if you cut half of nitrous oxide emissions that basically means 
of the farms will be gone by that target date of 2030. And um, you can imagine what that will do to food, particularly meat prices. Um, also, two members of parliament, one from the Liberal VVD, Mark Rutter's party, and one from the uh, far left D66, uh, ultra-liberal party, had been intending an individual, uh, individually uh, really to attend this farmers' protest to show support, even from the mainstream or establishment parties. But of course, the Dutch counter-terrorism unit, NCDV, NCTV, thoroughly politicised body told them there was a threat to their lives so they stayed away um, we'll go on to see what uh, else has uh, transpired here is a, a photograph taken the other day these cars are limited to 45 kilometers or 30 miles an hour for which you don't need a full driving license so i don't know whether they were carrying supporters or farmers or whatever but you can see that uh, two policemen one baton raised and the other baton lowered have already got their truncheons out threatening to stove in the windows of those who are attending these protests. So the Dutch police have gone straight to frightening tactics uh, rather than talking to these, these farmers. They regard them as a special category of dissident. Uh, here, silently, we'll play for half a minute or so some footage taken from a, in Britain, we would call it a mo motorway flyover, uh, so a bridge over uh, what would be known as the freeway in, in some countries, showing that the Dutch tractors have completely blockaded the route. You can see the amicable atmosphere as well uh, over this Dutch motorway. Um, it's, it's not um, a tense atmosphere among the farmers, but they are remarkably united that they're not going to allow half of their number to be uh, decimated. Well, decimated is the wrong word, of course. Uh, it, it, halved is the, is, the, is the proper word. In the city of Alkmaar, famous for its uh, traditional cheese market with the sleds, you can see that uh, on Twitter, Case71 is tweeting that this is footage, which we're rolling silently now, of just uh, the moment just before... Uh, uh, protesters uh, uh, among the farmers were released from a police station where, according to farmers, they had been unnecessarily lifted and arrested when they could have just been warned or fined for their participation in the traffic uh, against the rules or whatever uh, their offence was. But whether the rights or, the rights or wrongs of the arrest is not the, the main point here, uh, because that can always be spun. The, the, the impressive thing, and this comes originally from Glockenlauders, the, the whistleblowers channel on Telegram, uh, is the unity of the farmers. Again, large numbers of tractors coming in and in just a couple of seconds we will see a close-up by the chap filming this I think from a, a private residence balcony you will see the rather nonplussed policeman here standing and thinking has this come to a western country like the Netherlands that actually the farmers have had enough and don't trust the rule of law at all uh, to an extent that they are prepared to um uh, to, to, to have this kind of mass action. Uh, there is a hint, actually, of what's going on by the Dutch uh, blogger Gerard de Boer, who, in a wonderful irony, has a name that means Mr. Farmer. Uh, his blog on WordPress uh, rep reports that the immediate post-war uh, uh, act, which allows the forced uh, quartering of people uh, on, on the, uh, citizens, has rather quietly been brought back into force. So he reports that as of the 1st of April, and this is under cover of Ukrainian and ultimately Syrian as well refugee streams, they have revived uh, the 1952 law, uh, which allowed, and we'll bring it up on screen, the original sepia-tinted law, Article 7 of that law, uh, and the bit that's uh, underlined in red, allowed the government to uh, oblige people to receive in their homes and maintain, provide bed and board uh, to people whom the mayor of a, a local municipality had decided to quarter upon them. Uh, this, of course, was out of the Dutch wartime experience that uh, there was forced movement of people during the Second World War and the occupation of the Netherlands and after the war, in the same era, in fact, as the farmers were first targeted for uh, rationalisation 
um, the, the, the Dutch uh, government thought, well, we're going to have to do this again sometime, uh, so we may as well uh, legislate for it. That's what's now been reenacted. I also had a segment which I think we will leave till extra time on the schools bill, which is an exceptionally serious threat. And so even if people are not in concerned with home education personally, I think they should become subscribers if they're not already and listen to what we have to say in extra time about the schools bill because there's a good two dozen points that have been blogged by uh, a, a very major organization education otherwise that uh, all point towards complete direct state running of the uh, schools so that we'll be talking about that in extra time okay thank you very much alex well look uh, one uh, item that we did miss from the advertising section in the middle there was was this uh, there's an event taking place uh, in Scotland today and uh, to this evening in Glasgow uh, related to schools and so this is uh, uh, children from uh, to protect children from indoctrination and corruption by Education Scotland uh, so it's taking place uh, outside Education Scotland's offices 58 Robertson Street Glasgow 7 p.m. tonight uh, with Glasgow Cabby uh, Dr Stuart Walton Pastor Arthur O'Malley uh, Richard Lucas and Katrina Taylor and David uh, Scott undoubtedly will be at that as well. And bring a teddy. And bring a teddy is what it says, yeah. indeed. Okay, and uh, I think Alex has got a couple of images here. At, um... uh, the the uh, the final, the final stuff. We will just uh, get there. Uh, so Alex, uh, and finally, uh, study shows kids who are homeschooled could miss out on opportunity to be a gay communist. Uh, about to take our leave of Pride Month, declared de decreed by Clinton in the 1990s and now become something akin to a religious festival that's celebrated for a full month of June uh, in Western countries. And the Babylon Bee, a Christian-based um, satirical uh, outlet that we often feature, has come up trumps again because mid-month, June the 13th, they uh, made up this satirical headline and they even got a rent quote, sorry for going forward too quickly, they got a rent quote from the uh, AFL-CIO made up president whose name is Randy Weingarten and he says that the two essential roles of public education are to turn kids into communists and then make them gay. If education fails to accomplish both of these things in the life of a child it has failed miserably uh, and there's more on screen that you can read uh, if you freeze it and a, a cartoon which I gave you a sneak preview of to uh, rub that in. Um, this was actually made at the beginning of Pride Month, but has turned out uh, by the end of the month to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. The famous meme of Batman slapping Robin for saying the wrong thing. So in this particular variant, Robin is saying, because he's a bit behind the times, dear lad, I stand with you, Crip. And before he can finish saying it, Batman has slapped him around the chops and said, we're gay this month. My final and finally is actually from a Russian Twitter account uh, Moloti uh, Liebentrop, uh, who is uh, you know, based on uh, taking the rip out of the Germans, is, is the theme of that Russian account. And you'll see the picture in a moment, but the dialogue for it, the caption, which he's made up, is Prime Minister Boris Johnson talking to the Bundeskanzler and saying, look, Olaf, now I can do it with no hands, to which uh, Chancellor Schultz replies, has Zelensky been teaching you? And the image to accompany that is there a candid taken of the Prime Minister and the Chancellor from behind at the recent G7. Uh, for those who don't know what this is about, look up Zelensky and Piano, and I think that's all I need to say. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. I'll, I'll just add to that, uh, Alex, uh, for members of the gay community who are listening and watching UK Column News today, uh, we of course say, remember that the gay agenda goes to transhumanism, which is going to mean that nobody is going to have a fair place in society. So uh, there's a lot more to report about what these incredible 
um, globalists have got in store for us. Okay, we'll end there. Alex and Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. There will be an extra time for UK column members, so join us then. Otherwise, thank you to our viewers and listeners. And we'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Bye bye.